Welcome to episode 108. Ah, it's the wrong button. Uh, I'm bad at this. <laughs> I am terrible. Oh, boy. Okay, guys, back again. Um, again, this was a, a topic that I kind of vaguely considered a while back and, and then just kind of forgot about it. And uh, I found someone on Podmatch again who had the same subject matter and experience with it. Um, and it's something, like I said, we haven't discussed at all. And I, I like to attack, I like to tackle all these different conditions and disabilities and all these ailments from different point of views and so on. So, um, yeah, she has a story and like to have her on and tell it. So, uh, you want to introduce yourself and, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, TJ. My name is Jessica Setnick and my career has been in the eating disorder field. I experienced my own eating disorder starting in college when I went home to, for winter vacation and, I decided to go on my first serious diet. And when I came back to school, they were giving out awards in the dorm. And my award was the Tommy Lasorda Award for Dramatic Diminution. And if you don't remember why Tommy Lasorda would be related to an award, he was a slim fast spokesperson. He was also, I think, a baseball team manager. And he... Um, lost a bunch of weight. And so I got the award for that. And what happened in my mind after that was that I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't let anyone see me gain any weight because they had just given me an award for losing weight. And so I felt really panicked um, about that. And so I tried to keep up the diet, which was essentially, you know, a very limited starvation kind of deprivation diet. And it just wasn't possible. So at night, I started sneaking down into the kitchen of my dorm and eating. And then that led to feelings of guilt that led me to start throwing up. And it was a big old mess. And at the same time, I found uh, love for nutrition, which maybe is ironic or maybe had a, there was a reason there. Um, I took nutrition as an elective in college because someone told me it was an easy A. And I just thought it was so fascinating what happens to food when it goes inside your body. And not only that, but why we make the choices we make and our um, experiences with food because I was an anthropology major. And so that that was the, an interesting aspect of nutrition to me, too, is sort of the culture aspect of it. And so ultimately, I ended up going to school to become a dietitian and specializing in eating disorders. And I was able to recover from my eating disorder, which started um, the night before I started grad school, I think. I remember throwing up in the bathroom and thinking, this is not the way I want to live my life. If I'm going to be a person who's going to help people become more healthy, then I've got to make that commitment myself. And Whew, I remember it being very hard, um, but I made it work. Sometimes I had to drive, like if I was driving home and thought I might go home and throw up, I'd just drive around the block a hundred times or whatever I needed to do till that 
feeling went away. And um, I really related to um, you, TJ, when you talked about um, some things that you can't see on the outside, being an invisible disability. Uh And I put eating disorders in that category. And uh, I've just met a lot of people now having worked with individuals with eating disorders who are just so strong, brave, courageous, and shouldn't have to be, right? I mean, we all should you know, not have to overcome that kind of thing, uh, especially in a society that sees, sometimes sees eating disorder symptoms as something impressive or, you know, has no idea what people are going through on the inside. And so I'm happy to be able to share my story. It isn't, there is a message of hope. I will say that I, I live with it still every day, um, but it always stays on the thought level, not in the behavior level. But um, and eating disorder to me is not just the symptoms. It's, it's sort of a way of being, and I wish more people understood that. So I really appreciate the opportunity to have um, a conversation with you and, and answer any questions. Yeah. No, I mean, there's so many different stigmas, and there's so much goes on to it, because there are people who uh, eat themselves into a disability. You know, they just eat themselves into a chair, and their heart gives out, or, or they have bad heart failure because of you know, just because of laziness. And then there's people who actually have real issues. Um, and, you know, there's, and then there's, of course, the younger generation who, you know, they're always trying to look pretty and, you know, they'll stick their fingers down their throat. Like, there's so many different ways to come at it. It's not just, like, I think people simplify it all. It's like, oh, you're either fat or you're not. Or you're, you know. Well, yeah. and, and I'm going to disagree with you about the laziness part because I think that is an oversimplification. I don't think that smart people do things that harm themselves unless there is a reason. And so I would just submit the um, theory that someone who is really struggling with their eating in that way isn't necessarily lazy, that they have something that has gone on in their life that makes that eating essentially a mood altering chemical that they may be self-medicating for a traumatic event or another kind of condition. Um, someone who may be, um, for example, um, have anxiety or depression or agoraphobia and or obsessive compulsive disorder. And we don't tend to think of food as a mood altering chemical but it is, and it's the first one that we have exposure to. And for some people, it's the most effective, um, the easiest to get, and the most effective. So I just want to reframe yeah, the idea. Yeah. Um, and thank you for being okay with that. Yeah, of course. Um, so kind of go back to the beginning when you were going through this and yeah. you got your award. Like, Do you feel like part of the eating disorder came from when you got that award that you kind of felt pressure to kind of keep the figure and the look that you had? I think that that definitely was a big part of it. I think that my sort of unhealthy relationship with eating started a lot earlier. Um, I think that was sort of the big trigger for the really dysfunctional part. But um, my mom has always had a really loose interpretation of time and being on time is impossible for her. I'm not sure what that's about, but it persists to this day. And as an adult, I'm able to sort of accommodated or understand, not understand why, but, but be able to sort of understand that it's not about me. It's not personal. It's just her way. And when I was a kid, I was almost always picked up late from school. And this goes back as early as K 
kindergarten is the first time I remember it. And I remember, and this was in the 70s, so this was a different era. Um, this was a time when, you know, the teachers would leave. They knew I was safe or they assumed I was safe and they would leave. And I would literally be the only person there waiting for my mom to come pick me up. And so I remember being that age and I would climb up into the, um, onto the countertops in the kitchen of the kindergarten, not, not a full kitchen, but where they kind of kept the snacks and stuff. And I would climb up onto the counter and go through the cupboards till I found a snack. And I don't know if I was hungry or if I was comforting myself for the loneliness or feeling left behind. Um, but I would just sit on the countertop as a little kid and snack on the kindergarten snacks until my mom came and picked me up. So I think right there, I was already using food for comfort, which is not wrong. There's no right or wrong about it, but it's, it's not the effective way of getting your needs met. Right. And I was yeah. five years old, so I wasn't able to say to my mom, like, it's very distressing when you come late or, you know, that kind of thing. So, so food as sort of a coping tool was, was a much earlier start in my life. And I think what happened in college, the reason I sort of opened my story with that award is because I think that really tapped into some, some deep seated stuff. Yeah. No, so so how did your actual eating disorder like affect you on like a daily basis? Um, well, when I was around people, I would be very precautious about what I would eat and I would think about sort of what seemed okay to what other people would, would eat, you know. Um, not even a normal amount, but like what other people would expect someone on a diet to eat. And so it was very externally focused, didn't have a lot to do with what I was hungry for or how hungry I was. And then the rebound would come at night when no one was around and I would go down to the dorm kitchen and usually get something like, um, you know, several pieces of cake or something like that. And I do remember one time someone else came down for a midnight snack and I had this intense feeling of shame. Like I felt like I was caught red handed and actually I don't think it was that big of a deal to him because he had come down for a midnight snack too. So the idea that you go down for a midnight snack and not be ashamed of it was really foreign to me. Um, but I kind of persisted in that behavior for, you know, on and off for the next several years. The idea of trying to undereat and then ending up overeating at some point. I remember, for example, like eating a whole bag of bagels the same day I brought it home from the store. Um, just plain bagels, just just the bread. Um, mm. And it just seemed really abnormal to me to eat that much, that many bagels. Um, and I actually made an appointment with the dietitian at my school, um, and she seemed to really not understand, you know, the suffering I was going through because she basically told me I was fine and sent me on my merry way. Yeah. Um, and that was unfortunate. Um, and that was before I knew I was going to become a dietitian, but I, I think that really affected me, and I made it my practice when I was you know, working never discount someone how they were feeling about their eating whether I thought it rose to the level of an eating disorder is really not the issue and one of my main talking points when I educate health professionals is that there is no um, the, the diagnostic criteria we have as with probably many many things are really not adequate to describe the human experience of eating and so it's really important that we not discount anyone's 
eating experience just because they don't meet diagnostic criteria, but instead to really listen to what someone is saying to us um, and sort of leave our own objections at the door. Well, food is one of the most complicated, I mean, even like with, with eating, you know, like food addictions where people, they have to eat. Well, it's like, well, you have to eat no matter what. It's just, That's you keep, so true. And so, I mean, I know sex is another one that gets thrown in there because there are people who really mm-hmm. go through it and all that, but sex, yeah. you don't technically need sex to live, even though there are people who you would tell you that because they have that kind yeah. of issue. But in general, on, on the surface, like, you know, food, you have to eat. If you don't eat for a certain amount of period, mm-hmm. period of time, you die. Um, yeah. And like, kind no, of that, what, that is a really good point. Yes. Because <clears throat> what, what we know is, for example, that let's say your first pancake that you eat is because you're hungry. Your 14th pancake, we would say that's a binge. But, but where between number one and number 14 did it change? And that can actually be different for everyone. So that is a, a really good point. You have another way of looking at it is that as hard as it is to overcome a drug addiction, and we know it is incredibly painfully hard, and if you've ever experienced it or known someone who's experienced it, you've seen how wrenching it is. Um, I don't even know how to describe how hard it is because I haven't had that experience. But my understanding from seeing my patients and clients and friends go through it is just incredibly stressful for them. And at the same time, there's never a good reason to, let's say, use cocaine. There's never a time when it's it's okay, even though that might be, you know, a storyline that cocaine has. You know, it helps me finish my work or that kind of thing. There is a point where you can say, my cravings for cocaine are not useful. I'm never going to use cocaine. And, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But still the idea that there's a, a line there. But you're right. With food, you can't ever say there's never a good reason to eat. You have to determine every single time you have a craving for food. Is this a useful craving? Is this hunger? Is this a need for fuel? Or is this something else? And that is exhausting um, to go through. If you think about how exhausting it is to go through those cravings and withdrawals for drugs or other substances, it's exactly, you know, the same plus for someone who's trying to figure out when and if their craving to eat is actually a useful one that they should follow or one that is sort of part of their addiction, let's say. No, I got you. Uh, one thing I, I didn't want to skip over that, that award you got, like, were, were you a bigger girl and yeah. you lost a lot of weight? Like how, how did you end up like achieving that? Okay. award? Well, that is the, the really ironic part is no, I was never, never a bigger girl. Um, in my mind I was right. in my mind, I had a very distorted image of my size and I don't actually remember if I, maybe I did gain some weight when I went to college. Um, but I don't think it was anything significant. I think that I just had kind of a crummy self-esteem and that going on a diet, I don't know. It almost seems like just a fun thing that everybody does. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in our society is that this mood altering behavior is just seen as normal. It's almost as if, um, I don't know, heroin was just seen as normal and some people are going to get addicted to it and some people will try it and not like it and move on. Um, but that's okay. Everyone can just try it. And yeah, there'll be some, some collateral damage. There'll be some wreckage of some lives, but you know, it's all right for most people. It's fine. I feel like that's kind of how we treat diets. And, um, yeah, I was part of 
the collateral damage. What what I was getting at though, like I'm trying to figure out why they thought this award belong like you were adequate for the this oh, award. Oh, gotcha. It wasn't because I was bigger. It was because in the three weeks of winter vacation, I dropped a lot of weight. Oh, okay. Oh, gotcha. Okay, that makes sense now. Yeah. Um, so you. It was a fast transformation. Yeah. So what what I find interesting, it's kind of like. You know how you uh, you know I try to picture you in the kitchen, kind of going through the cupboards, trying to find stuff, and a lot of and, and then like the shame you get afterwards. It's it's kind of like how some of these kids, like the, especially girls, they go through their parents being like super religious, telling them they can't have sex and can't do anything, and then when they actually go and they go against their parents' wishes and say, "Well, you're not going to tell me what to do," and then they sleep with a person, and then they have this like shame that just rushes through them. They did what they didn't want what mm-hmm. their parents told them not to do. And then all of a sudden it's like, mm-hmm. well, I did it. Now where's the, where's the feeling of like, yes, I did it. Yeah. And then you're just yeah. like, Oh, I'm a whore. I hate myself and I'm terrible. And it's like, Whoa, where'd this come from? Well, you know, I think there are some similarities there. I mean, I, I compare when people say they feel like they should tell someone not to eat. I, I compare it to when you have, a, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend, um, and, you know, bring them home to meet your family and your family hates them. Right. It's really rough to say this to loved ones, but the more you say you hate someone's significant other, the more they have to defend them, right? Mm-hmm. And so if they ever do decide that person isn't right for them and they, you know, they decide to break it off, then they may feel ashamed to come to you and say, oh, you were right, especially if you're the kind of person that says, I told you so. So it's really similar with food when you have someone in your life telling you, are you sure you want to eat that? And, and you have to sort of defend it, you know, defend your eating. And then after you eat, you realize, oh, I kind of maybe do regret eating that. It's really hard to, to humble yourself and go back to the same person who criticized you and ask for support. And so if we can stay really neutral about our friends and families eating, that's what allows us to be a safe person for them to come to us when they do have a dilemma. Yeah. No, I, one of the things I, I think a lot of people miss is like when you said you kind of saw yourself as something else or, you know, there are like a lot of people really do. Sometimes we see ourselves uglier than we really are or whatever, like physically, mm-hmm. physically, in, you know, internally, whatever. Um, and, you know, I remember you ever, did you ever watch that movie? It's called Precious. It was like an. I, I never did. Okay, it's a pretty brutal movie, but you know, it's, it's this girl. She's like this overweight black girl who's getting abused by her mother and so on. And in her mind, she looks in the mirror and she sees herself as this like model, pretty blonde-haired white girl, and she's just trying to yeah. escape from her reality of yeah. of her life. And she's like, she's just eating a bunch of food, and I mean, a bunch of horrible things. She gets AIDS, and a bunch of horrible stuff happens to her. It's a really brutal. Yeah. It was up for an Oscar. It's it's actually a good movie. But I remember. I remember. But it's an emotional roller coaster. But I I, I think of that because it's like. You know, there's there's the whole like you can fantasize and and you want certain things that maybe that aren't really attainable. Like you know, as a guy, like I might fantasize as wanting to be a football player. I'm like, okay, I'm not that athletic. I can't do that. But there's another form of it where you're actually like envisioning yourself either worse off or better off. Where you're just like, yeah, I am this ugly thing over here, and you just start just tearing yourself, especially when you're when you're beating yourself up more so when your mental health is just tearing you apart from the inside out and eventually you just start taking it out on yourself. And in your case, you did it with food. Um, Mm -hmm. and you start to like realize like how much, 
like psychologically, if you don't get your mind right, like it could, I mean, obviously it could kill you. Um, mm-hmm. and there's so many but ways sometimes about getting it. your mind right means actually recognizing that your mind is kind of playing tricks on you because I'm not sure we can completely change our self image. Mm. Um, because what we know about self image is that it's very fixed. In other words, you can, you, you have an image of yourself in your mind, whether your eyes are closed, whether you're, you know, not looking in the mirror, whether your vision impaired. I mean, we all have an image of ourselves in our mind and it can be very fixed. It can come from a picture that we've seen of ourselves. It can come from what we've been told about ourselves. And so it's, you know, there's so many factors that influence how you look to Mm -hmm. yourself. And sometimes, and, and we've learned a lot actually about body image from individuals who have lost a limb um, the, the idea of phantom limb, right, where someone might reach down in the night to scratch a leg that's no longer there. there yeah. You know, those neural pathways are still there, even though the, the limb isn't there. My stepdad had a, his leg amputated, and I, I was, you know, respectfully, I hope, you know, very curious about this because it really has informed a lot of the body image understanding that we have. Another example is um, someone who maybe has lost a lot of weight and still walks into a room and looks for the the sturdiest chair, right? Or feels, you know, um, conscious about getting on an airplane because, you know, formerly they didn't fit in the seat. And there's a lot of ways that body image is really fixed. And one of those ways is things you were told about your body when you were younger. So if you were told that you were ugly or I'm thinking of a, a client I had once who who had very, very curly hair and she remembered sitting in church and her dad looking at someone with straight blonde hair two rows ahead and saying, why can't your hair look like that? You know, Mm -hmm. things like that that are really formative memories based on what other people have said. And um, I read in one of the kind of um, reports that I was reading to try to learn, um, someone who had um, lost their hand said, they often forgot that they didn't have a hand or that they had a prosthetic hand until they were paying at the, the grocery store. And when they would reach out to give their money to the cashier, that's when they would notice or remember because that's when the cashier, you know, they would notice another person noticing their body. And so there's so many, many, many factors about our bodies and add on to that, that our own self image can change during different times, right? Because, you know, if, if vision was just through your eyes, then there would never be any, you know, different eyewitness reports to things. It also is through your mind. And so how you're feeling about yourself or about external things affects what you see or what you imagine you see, you know, when you look down at yourself or when you look in the mirror. So, you know, it's, it's, if nothing else, everyone's experienced the feeling of getting a haircut. Well, I don't know. I say everyone, and, and that may not be correct, but many people have experienced getting a haircut, dramatic haircut, and the first time you get in the shower to wash your hair, you still put the same amount of shampoo in your hand because it's almost as if you've forgotten what changed because, again, that image of ourselves is very fixed, and so you end up with way too much shampoo for the limited amount of hair that you have now, and that's really a, a great example of how body image can stay very fixed. And so that's why our early experiences can really still be affecting us, even if they don't fit, even if let's say you're, you know, 
a very, um, I don't know what the right word is, a very conventionally attractive person if you have memories of being not accepted, let's say, in your family. Um, I've had clients who've told me that they were told by their parents that their skin was too dark and why was their skin so dark and things that you really can't control but you can learn from others are unacceptable about you. That can then affect how you feel about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I may have gone off your No, no, you're fine. Um, yeah. No, because okay. kind of to tie it in, like one of the things I've done more recently is like I've, I've tried to, you know, like I've gotten so much better with my mental health and, and, and everything in my life, but I'm, I've, I try to track down everything that's happened to me and just kind of look at bits and pieces of, okay, how bad does it does this really affect me? Because sometimes you feel like you have issues and, and you feel a certain way about something and you don't really know where it comes from. And sometimes it's just passed down from your family. Some of it is childhood, mm-hmm. childhood mm-hmm. trauma. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's a lot of times you just don't have answers. And I remember when the first time I like discovered that I was molested in school because I just suppressed it for so long. And then, like, recently I just started to bring it out and I'm just like, Okay, so I don't feel like I have any problems being with a woman or any of that, but like, is there something about that that is is holding me back in other ways? And so I try to I try to like just kind of go through my entire rolodex in my head of just all the things I've been through, and and try to figure out how much they impact me today, so I can solve you know try to be the best person I can be because you know I'll uh-huh. never be perfect, but I want to try to get as close to it as possible, knowing that I'll never achieve it. I just want to try to figure out. What is holding me back? And, and, and you know, so, mm-hmm. and, and again, people go through so many different things and you just don't know what kind of PTSD you have from just even a, even a simple event, something you could, you could witness something, even if you watched a movie of somebody killing somebody in a movie that could impact you differently than someone else. Um, You're so right on about that. And I think that food is such a personal topic. And yes, those childhood experiences with food can still be affecting us. And there's that, that, um, you're, you're sort of, um, fighting the perception that I think a lot of people have of, oh, that happened so long ago how that can't still be affecting me. But to me, the truth is it, the longer ago something happened, the more it may be affecting you because the more of your life has happened in the lens of that incident. And in addition, the longer ago it happened, the younger you were when it happened and the fewer coping skills you had to understand or deal with it. So, I kudos to you for being willing to to look back on that. And it reminds me to mention that if anyone listening wants to try to do that with their food, um, I do have a, an e-workbook that you can download that, um, that we can make available. We can put a link in the show notes. So it's just to sort of guide individuals. Um, there's no cost. Um, I I'll, I'll put in the show notes a, a code that you can enter so there won't be any cost. And, you know, if you want to, you can use that as a guide to sort of go back through some of those childhood experiences with food, which can be stressful. Um, I remember once I picked up a book called the Money Management Workbook, and I thought, oh, this will be good because, you know, I could use a budget and maybe it'll help me figure out some things. And the first page of the book was all about how your childhood experiences with money shape your life. And the first question was something like when you needed something um, how did you get money for it? And what was your experience of that? And I immediately shut. Oh, I don't have the emotional strength to do this. Like I thought it was just going to be writing a budget. But if you want me to actually go back in time and experience what it was like to be a kid and have to, you know, ask for something normal kid like an ice cream cone and have to hear the lecture about how a dollar for ice cream, 
when I was a kid, we had to borrow five cents to go to the doctor and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And, and to feel like a burden as a child when you're just being a child, um, that was like way more than I was planning to do. So I'm very aware it can be emotional, but it can also help to have someone, and I eventually did go through the book. Um, so when I was feeling more emotionally ready, um, but I, I'm happy to provide that for, you know, yeah, for anyone sure. to do that with yeah, food. Um, yeah, that um, sort of guided, guided work. Yeah. yeah and, and kind of what we were just talking about, like one of the things that I did discover in this is that, you know, because uh, I've never done drugs in my life and I don't drink. And, you know, one of the things is I was abused and went through so many things in school and, and, and when I was young that it, you know, I have an addictive personality, but it kept me away from all that. Like it, the one good thing that abuse and all that did, it made me afraid to say yes to a lot of things because, you know, I wasn't given a chance to say yes to some other things. Um, and so <clears throat> one of the things I wanted to kind of like be a little parallel, and it, it's going to sound a little trivial and stupid, but when one of the things that I, I did, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, you know, you know, you hear about like gambling addictions and you go like, okay, it's a real problem for some of these people. And I'm like, okay, cool. And so I, w- I was playing like just a, an app, a, a poker game app. And I just like kept winning money and kept winning. It's fake money, but I kept winning and I just mm-hmm. kept going all in and all in. And I'm like, holy shit, I would have a real problem if I, this was real. And, mm-hmm. and I just started like, just like, I've started obsessing about just fake money and all these things. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. and it's like, you see how quickly it can just go left very, you know, and again, like I said, this was fake and I yeah. got over it after like. 20 minutes because it was like, oh, okay, who gives a shit? This is, this is a dumb game. But I mean, you can see how certain things manifest uh, in, sure. like in your case. And I think mm-hmm. that gives you a lot of compassion. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And the thing that's hard to understand is if you think about gambling addiction, let's just use that example that you gave. If I'm not addicted to gambling or I don't understand how someone could be addicted to gambling, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But I feel like that's how people act about a lot of things. If I don't understand it, or if I don't have this problem, then it's not a real problem. And you're not every person, right? So let's accept that other people might have that problem. I mean, we've had in Texas, unfortunately, a situation where, you know, people um, go, you know, inside to gamble somewhere and leave a kid in the car for eight hours and things like that, you know, and you're just thinking, how? How can you do that? Come on, that's ridiculous. But for someone else, it's, it's not the gambling. And that's what I think we need to understand. Um, and maybe, maybe this is old news for everyone, but I'll say it anyway, just in case it's new news. But it's not the gambling. It's not the sex. It's not the food. It's not anything except the chemical changes in our brain that those cause. So yeah. it's not, you know, the Internet. It's, it's, the, it's the dopamine changes. It's that, that adrenaline. It's that. The, it's the feeling in our brain of feeling amused or cared for or comforted. And that's what we get addicted to. And so, you know, over time, there can be really significant brain changes and that then leads to withdrawal. And so that's why people don't change, not because they're lazy, not because they're stupid. And I don't think what you said was trivial and stupid. I think what you said was you experiencing a, a tiny hit of, what some people experience a big hit of and how alluring that can be. And the worse you feel in your life, the more alluring it is to try to find something else, right? Because we'd like to think that happy, contented people don't spend their day doing things that are harmful. Now, sometimes happy, contented people 
through, you know, prescription drugs that they were using appropriately can get addicted. But usually people aren't doing things like, you know, let's say compulsive gambling to get high. After a while, they're just doing it just to feel baseline, just to feel normal. So I guess if there's one thing that I say or one message that I give where, you know, if someone were to listen to this and take one thing away, it would be that even if you haven't experienced an addiction to something, to have compassion for people who do, because it's not that they are, you know, lazy, stupid, have, make bad choices. It's really that a behavior that everybody else does. Like, let's say weighing yourself on the scale. Lots of people weigh themselves every day on the scale, but not everybody gets addicted to it. Some people suddenly it's that dopamine hit and they're doing it all the time or, you know, something else throwing up doesn't sound like a very enjoyable behavior to most people. But for those who it gives that, that adrenaline hit, it helps them feel better. And so I, I just would like to send a message of compassion to mm-hmm. anyone who's doing a behavior that they think of as stupid. You're not stupid. You're using it for a good purpose. It may have harmful effects. And that's sort of how we define addiction, right? Is per- persisting in a behavior, even when it has harmful effects, but not the same as making bad choices. Right. Well, I think what we're doing, like, I think examples, specific examples to like, or specific analogies can help certain people because people will look at, let's say, an eating disorder and just go like, well, when I eat too much, my stomach hurts, so I don't need to eat it anymore. And they just look at it on a surface level and it's like, okay, right. that's it. You know, but if you right. if you take it from many different angles, like gambling, drugs, you know, like even for me as, as a young adult trying to go out and try to find girls and you, you have this goal of wanting to find your ultimate true love. And, but you get lost in the middle of it and you start to just like, you know, they always say quantity over quality. And, and when you're young, you're just trying to get laid or, or you're just trying to find a bunch of people. And then you find somebody and you know, they're probably not good for you, but you know, you're probably going to get sex out of it or you're going to get some sort of thrill out of it. And then the neck and then that girl disappears because you weren't compatible, but you were just chasing her because of this one high that you were trying to get. And then you go on with the next person. You keep chasing this same thing. And it's, it's there. It's just like everybody goes through some way of going, you know, they go through it in some way. It's just people, if you talk about it just as one example, like eating disorder or gambling, a lot of people have no idea what you're talking about because gambling, a lot, most people don't gamble or they don't gamble in the way of having a problem. Or can't relate to it. Can't yeah, relate to it in, in any way. And so that's why, that's why there's so many examples. And for me and you, like, you know, like I've been through shit so I can... And I've had I have other examples of kind of being somewhat parallel to your your example, you your eating disorder. But I've never had it, but I know what it's like to right. go through hell and and have yeah just these tingles of like oh I gotta chase that um, and 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 always well, want to be perfected. What is the thing that every person has in common, CJ? The one thing that everybody has in common is that life is hard. The mm-hmm. end. I mean, we have different types of hard. Right. And we could put them in different categories, but life itself as a human, as a soft feeling creature is very hard. It's hard to understand why things happen. We want to understand. It's hard to figure out what the right thing to do is a lot of the time. Life is a hard place to be, especially for sensitive feeling people. And so it makes sense that we try to look for ways, whether consciously or unconsciously, to comfort ourselves, to feel better try to not feel, I, I, I think of it as being the world's pincushion. When you're a sensitive person, there's something everywhere to make you feel sad, to hurt you. 
And how do you comfort yourself or numb yourself or take away the feeling of helplessness and powerlessness that you can't solve everyone's problems? It's just really hard, especially when you, you're trying to be a helping person, trying to give back. Um, and it's really hard when you have to accept help. Like there's no person in life that doesn't have some difficulty. So it, it makes sense if we can, like you said, kind of depersonalize it off of the specific substance or behavior and sort of, you know, generalize and, and, and say, no, you can relate to this because you've gone through something yourself, whatever that may be that was tough on you. You understand because you have something that helps you, whether it's a hobby or something that society considers productive, it's still an escape for you. I mean, I think of TikTok. Oh, my gosh. I had TikTok on my phone and I lost an hour. And um, like, I mean, like time stopped. I was so enjoying it. And I realized I missed a meeting because I was so entranced by TikTok. And I had to delete or I chose to delete it from my phone because I that is not, I, I can see where this is going. I could easily lose 24 hours a day on this because I just loved it. I loved the humanity of it. There's so many things I loved about it, but I could also see kind of like you said, you could sort of see the addictive personality aspect of you, how that, that really made your hormones in your brain feel good. And, you know, you chose to stop playing poker online. I chose to, to delete TikTok. Um, and I've deleted and reinstalled Instagram about 25 times for the same reason. Right. But it's so interesting, especially with the internet stuff, how it's really designed that way to help us feel better. And that's what keeps us on it. I mean, we think of it as a voluntary choice, but a lot of these things are designed on purpose to be alluring to us and to give us those dopamine hits. So that is something we can all relate to is the, the toughness of getting through this life and and that we're always looking for things to make it feel a little bit easier, or a little bit better. Well, that's why I think it's great to have these conversations because I don't think a lot of people, I think people's imaginations are just aren't what they should be because like for me, I can even just like listening to your story, like you, like I said, you being down in the kitchen trying to find food, like I, I could like visualize that just because I don't, I don't know what, I mean, obviously I've gone through cupboards trying to find food, but I can kind of feel what you were going through, even though I'll never know to its, you know, fullest mm -hmm. but you know i don't think a lot of people really can just put themselves in other people's shoes and it's like because like i said I, I always had like a big imagination when i was a kid even when i was in my worst of pain and going through so much trauma i always had an imagination of of just different examples and, and things like when i was a kid and i was in, you know had no skin i was dying in a hospital i was still like had all my stuffed animals and my toys that just like helped get me through like i created this like alternate world in my head that like to 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 fight the pain. Um, mm. and so like, to me, like I, that's why I always try to throw examples and, and, and analogies for people to just like, okay, like, you know, cause I remember hearing some guy was like criticizing an album that was considered a classic album years ago. And they said, well, the album doesn't hold up because he's talking about tape decks and beepers. And I'm like, but like for me, when I hear that, like, obviously I know the time that that was done but I also can just say, okay, but that's the modern day Galaxy S so-and-so, iPhone 11. And it's just like, that's all you just translate it to the next thing. And, mm -hmm. so, and so same thing with like, like I said, okay, yes, gambling and eating disorders and, and drug addiction, they're different in many different ways, but they also have many similarities. And if you can and just I, attribute it to one thing, you can, you can 
you can kind of figure out how that can happen to you as well, even though it won't happen well, to you. I think what you're talking about is empathy. It's the, you know, the well, ability too, yeah. to sort of put yourself in someone else's shoes and, and feel like, okay, I don't know exactly what it's like to be them, but I know what it's like to have hardships in your life. And I do think that one of the things that is so prevalent in our society is this idea of like, well, you can't understand what it's like to be me. And that is 100% true. I can't understand what it's like to be you, but I would like to, I would like to hear more about what it's like to be you and to be open to that. And I, I might, my two aunts used to have this, these conversations that my cousin and I would call the pain auction where, you know, one aunt would say, you know, I stubbed my toe and the other aunt would say, I broke my hand. And the other aunt would say, well, I, this, this, you know, and it was like, who has it worse? Who has it worse? And I always thought, why can't they just each give sympathy to the other one? That's all they want is for, for the other one to say, I'm sorry that you stubbed your toe. I know how bad that can hurt because I broke my hand and it hurt really bad. And I'm envisioning that your toe hurt as bad as my hand hurt. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. That's all anybody wants, right? I mean, it's not like one, one sister can fix the other sister's broken part. They just want to know that someone cares. And I feel like that's something we all can do is just sort of stop saying you don't understand what it's like to be me because you're right. You can't. And no one can understand what it's like to be someone else. But we can still have empathy and sympathy. And, you know, I feel like it's so tempting to think um, that there's all these people that are having like this perfect life. But after 20 years of sitting across from people who on the outside would look to someone else like they're having a perfect life and are in so much pain. And I've learned that what you see on the outside is often very unrelated to what is on the inside. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons, honestly, why we like to see celebrities um, lives and kind of investigate because we have this idea that celebrities' lives are so perfect and it kind of makes us feel better to find out they're not. I'm not saying it's nice the way we invade celebrities' private lives. Yeah. I'm just saying I, I can see what's lure is because we we want to know that everybody's life is hard even the people who sometimes perceive you know are, are perceived to be perfect or have this great life and so it's not so much tearing people down as it is um just wanting to feel normal ourselves and i feel like there's a, a space in the world for so much more compassion and, and empathy for others even if yes we can't understand exactly what it's like to be them but that doesn't mean that we don't want to try to help with their pain well, in another way, uh, one of the problems is we also don't have enough of these conversations to educate people. Like, obviously, the information is out there. You can Google it. You can look it up anywhere. But not enough people are open enough to tell them. I mean, there are people, for sure, like you, but there's not enough people that are talking about it and being able to, especially with the younger generation, because there's so much information coming at them at once. Like, I don't even know how you are a kid nowadays, especially with all the mass stuff and, and, and COVID and everything that's going on. And um, But there's so much information being thrown at them that they have to, it, it's hard for them to kind of take it all in because if you're just a young kid and depending on what your ethnicity is and, and gender and all these different things, you, you have to take in only so, there's only so much you can take in. And so it's hard to really be open-minded to everything, even though the information is there. But again, like I said, if, if we don't have the conversations and it's, this information isn't, you know, provided to them, they're, they're just going to think that certain things are normal that aren't and, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're, you're, you're making me think of another point that I think is important in this conversation, which is that 
we can't also, or we also shouldn't say like, well, just because I have it hard, that means that I have it the worst. Yes, we all have it hard, but we have to also accept that there are sort of there's always flaws someone in worse. The system. Well, yeah, the sense that like you know some people have not had even like let's say the benefits that that I may have had in getting through things like a supportive family or I'm not saying my family is supportive. I'm just giving examples. I know. Yeah. Um, but I you know my dad died when I was twelve. Um, so I could say, well, you know, I have it worse than someone with two parents, but that's not always true. Someone might have two abusive parents, you know, or there's, there's system issues, you know, where depending on, you know, your race, like I, you know, because I'm white, my family lived in a safe area. You know, I didn't realize some of these systemic inequalities, you know, but they, they exist. And so I'm not saying we should all be having pain auctions and rank, rank our suffering everyone is suffering in some way but what i mean is we also need to have compassion that not everyone's experience is the same as ours and i think that's the balance i've been trying to go through during covid okay now we are totally off the topic of eating disorders but the balance i've been trying to go through is letting myself feel how hard it is to be me while there's this part inside me that says, yeah, but you have a safe home to live in and you have enough room for all the people that had to be quarantining at home and you have enough money to go stock up on toilet paper, you know, and things like that. And to not feel like, wow, I don't get to complain because I have so many gifts and benefits. And it's like, well, I don't want to complain, but also it's hard because COVID is just hard on everyone. And so it's that balance of, am I a whiner because I'm not just like happy go lucky about the fact that I have enough toilet paper and some people don't, but also how can I let myself just accept that this is emotionally hard? It's a, it's a real challenge that I face because I want to say, I know I am so lucky and I am very, very grateful, but that doesn't mean every day is a picnic. Right. And I don't look, I, I, there's, there's always going to be some landmine that you step on. Like there's, there's, and I, I talk about this, I've talked about this before where, you know, <clears throat> I, I buy Apple products and they, in, in some ways, enslave Asian kids to make our phones. They're killing themselves because they don't want to, because they're, they're underpaid and malnourished and all these different things. I don't support that. But if I go and buy a Samsung phone, God knows what I'm going to land on with them. And, 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 you know, there, every company, I mean, there's a lot of people coming up about how Walmart is treating their employees. Well, I go to Walmart. I don't, I don't like that they mistreat a lot of their employees. And it's like, it, it's kind of no matter what you do, you're going to step on something that's against what you stand for. And it, it, I guess you just got to try to be the best person you can be and try to do as much good as you can in this world. But I mean, I don't think there's, I think there's blood on everyone's hands. I don't think there's anybody who's, I mean, again, I, I mean, like I said, we can never be perfect, but there's more than just that. But, you know, you can't, there's only so much you can do to try to be the best person you can be. You can go out here and, 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 you know, give a dollar to homeless guy and, you know, you can always just be nice to people and, and, and give out good energy. But no matter what, we all have skeletons in our closet. It's, 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 it can't, it's impossible to avoid it. Can I read you something? I keep it in my, in my, the drawer next to my bed and I'm going to get it out. All right. just walk to my room (laughs) because this is, that you're talking about exactly what this says. It's from the, the Jewish Talmud. I can't, I don't read the Talmud, so I don't know where I got this quote, but this is what it says. 
do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you excused from it. I feel like that totally conceptualizes what you were saying, that there's so much hurting, but do what you can now and don't give up just because you can't solve everything. Yeah, there's so much pain. And like, I mean, one of the things that I think about is like, like the Mexican economy is basically, I think they said like it's 85% is built on drug money. And it's, but like, but they can't, what are they going to do? Not go to work? Like, because their company is, you know, created in drug money. Are they so not supposed to feed their family? You know, like, what do you, you can't escape. And there's so much, you know, blood that's on everyone's hands, if you will, because like I said, a lot of this stuff was built on slavery. And, you know, I mean, there's people that just come in and they do whatever they want. They mistreat people. And, and, and you just got to deal with it. Cause if you don't make a paycheck, you can't keep the lights on. You can't take care of your kids. Mm-hmm. You can't do this. And, 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 you know, again, we can only mm-hmm. try to push to be fur- go further down the road and make a better life for everyone because, look, we, we have made a lot of strides towards racism and sexism and, um, you know, like gay people getting married and, and just even the fact that marijuana looks like it's about to be legal because it has a lot of medical uses and, and it also helps people relieve their stress regardless of what you feel about it. I don't do it, but it helps people. So why not anything to combat, you know, the horrors that are going on out in this world? Because, I mean, every time I step out, it's, it's like, you know, I mean, there's so many people in my family it looks like they're going to be dying this year. And, you know, my you, see, God, you, see, you see all these celebrities that are dying that are just dying out of nowhere. And you just feel like, man, like because that's one of the things I've been kind of like toying with is like my mortality. And, and, and it sounds dark. And I guess it is. But it's, it's one of those. It's like, man, I'm 33 and you just don't know how much longer you have in this world so you just got to go all in and try to put as much good energy into it and hopefully you leave something behind that kind of blooms into something even better um and and like i said there's there's so much going on even just like you know what my other job is i go out and i fill vending machines out in these truck uh, rest areas for these truckers and, and a lot of the stuff locally in these laundromats and whatever and a lot of times i, I bump into these people Again, I, I don't wear a mask and, you know, people can think whatever they want. It's, I'm not against it. It's just, I just, you know, I have really bad allergies and I'm just one of these people who's just like, I don't like any restrictions. So I just say, screw it. Um, and, and that's the risk I take. But I don't treat anybody differently for if they wear a mask or don't wear a mask or what they look like, their color, any of that shit. And so I hold doors for people, even though I'm carrying a bunch of heavy equipment and I see a lot of people wear a mask and they just treat me like I'm, I'm actually the COVID germ that's just going around infecting people. And I'm like, dude, like... Can we just be like we we just we're getting so far from people just being kind to each other? Um, we've lost it. Like our humanity is just so broken. Like we, and I've been through shit, and I've been I've going down the road of hating people for all the things they've done to me and all that. But that that not everyone's like that. Not everyone's evil. Not everyone. You know, we all have some evil. We all have some goodness, and you know, experiences kind of mold us into who we are. But <clears throat> I don't know. Like it's just one of the things that really bugs me nowadays is going to a grocery store and just say, Hey, you need help, you know, lifting that or so-and-so cause you're older and I'm, 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 you know, I have some youth on my side and I have a decent back and I could, I could carry that for you. And it's like, they don't even want to look at me. And I'm not even just saying the mask stuff. There's just, there's take the mask out and the, the COVID mm. people started that before. I mean, people weren't great before COVID. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's so depressing because it's like, man, like, 
what are, what are we doing? Like we're just we're, we're so far from where we need to be. And when I look at like all the stuff that goes on racially, and it's like the media just divides us so much to the point it's like we're supposed yeah. to believe that white and black people don't like each other. They get along all the time, but we're meant to hate each other. And it, it's there's so much bullshit that is portrayed in the media and, and what's going on out there. No one listens to each other anymore, and it's just there's so much evil. And again, I know I shouldn't focus just on that, but it, it, a lot of times it's very hard because so much so many, you know, metaphorical dead bodies are all around us where it's like, God, like, I just want to, I just want to go out and just say, you know, just grab my food and, and come home and just be happy. And when you see how, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's in such a, just a certain state of mind where they're just like, I don't want to deal with no one. Screw it. It's like when I do, well, when I, remember hurt, hurt people, hurt people. So yeah, no, that's what, the one thing that helps me is that when people are jerks, I just think, you know what? I, I get to have a happy life and you get to be a jerk. And so, um, I win (laughs) and that sometimes helps me just to depersonalize it. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I try to do the best I can with it. Again, like I said, I wouldn't, I'm not always down. It's just something I've thought about, like my mortality and just the, just the the whole, just why the world is going right now. And I just fear for a lot of people because there's so like, it just seems like everybody's on alert and everyone's just kind of, looking at each other like who, who who's going to be the one that does the crazy thing because it's like you can't even go to grocery stores or, or, or movie theaters right because people are shooting them up like we didn't have that years ago I and mean, we had i mean it happened every couple years or whatever but now it's just a thing we're just it's something that we're used to now and it's like man like there was there was a there's a lady in a grocery store that i go to every time every day ran over a guy's sneakers she was like 75 years old and the guy cold cocked her, knocked her unconscious, and broke her jaw. She's seventy five years old. This guy was like thirty, and like it, this is a grocery store I go to every day. And I'm not trying to personalize it, make it just about me, but it's like, man, like I go in there every day, and it's like an old woman just got her her face broken because she ran over Whoa. his sneakers. It's like, how did we get here? Because I've always, and I was when I was brought up, I was like, I was always, you know, respect your elders, even though a lot of people did a lot of bad things to me that were much older than me but especially older people and you know and one of the things we were taught with covid is that they're the most vulnerable to this so it's like why don't we protect them what are we doing like it, it's just be, and again like I, it sounds so cheesy and all but everything that a lot of these sentiments are really good things it's just they get overused or underused or we just don't go through with it where it's like look just be kind to each other. I don't, I don't understand this shit. Like why, why are we hitting old people? Why are we shooting up schools? Why are we doing this shit? Let's just treat each other right. And this is why, you know, a lot of these addictions and, and, and these vices and all these things happen because it's an escape from this dark reality that we live in. You know, we, we have to eat, we have to have sex, we have to do drugs. And a lot of times we don't always make the best choices when we go about uh, obtaining it. Well, you make a good point there that, you know, when we're under stress, that's not the time we make our best choices. And so if people are under so much stress so much of the time, then you're right. Humanity as a whole is not making the best choices on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, you and I just met. We're becoming friends and we're getting along. And it's like we (laughs) we didn't know much about each other until about a week ago. And it's like it's just easy because we're coming from the same point of view. We have uh, similar messages, even if we're, we're going after different subject matters, but it's like, you know, I can see where you came from, even though I'll never know, understand what you went through and you could do the same thing with me. Um, 
And like I said, but also I don't, I don't feel threatened that when people feel threatened, they, they react. Right. And so the idea that, you know, there's only so much to go around and anything you have takes something away from me. I mean, some people are really operating from that level of scarcity and survival. And, and I don't understand it either um, because I feel like there's plenty to go around. But, but some people, like I said, hurt people hurt people. And, and it's really unfortunate that people are working out their issues on others instead of working out their issues, you know, internally or in counseling or however. I mean, there's people with issues who are working on them and people with issues who are in denial. There's no people with no issues. Right. And I think that's what you're, you're seeing is people who are working out their issues about whatever you know, on the little old lady at the supermarket or, or, you know, the innocent child, um, you know, because that can help them feel more powerful to hurt someone else. And, you know, someone who feels good about themselves doesn't need to hurt someone else to feel better. So you're right. There's a big cycle of, of hurt people hurting more people and that creates more hurting people. Well, that's why I told you the other day, like, you know, the main, it maybe it wasn't intended, but now, like, my main goal with this podcast is just making it so that someone out there doesn't feel alone. Because when I was in those headspaces of just no one understands me, like, I wanted to hurt people because people hurt me. And I felt so alone Ooh. and no one no one understood me, no one accepted me. And, and, and there, was a, there was a lot of, you know, I, I was, a lot of it was true. And there was some other stuff that was filtered in there just because I had so much pain that it was just like I was looking for everything to hate and not like and... Um, how did you get through that? Well, I mean, therapy was part of it. Medication helped, um, you know, but for a long time I was living just because my grandma and my mom were alive and I didn't want them to see me dead. Um, Mm. but I mean, there was a period of time where I was going through and I'd see a pretty girl who was just, wouldn't, I perceived that she would never even talk to me. I would just go, I want to rape her and not that I would ever go through with it. But the fact that I had that kind of hatred of thought because I was molested because I was bullied and I had teachers who wouldn't let me go to the bathroom and I just had to sit in it. Stuff like that. <gasps> you have to like that stuff that like is deep seated now. Like that stuff that's go that carries on through life because my mom told me that adults matter. You know, when you're young, listen to the adults. Mm-hmm. And I listened to the adults and the adults, all they did was abuse me. And so that didn't. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm when, as when I started to get older and become a teenager and even just, to a younger adult, even like my early twenties, I'm 33 now. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out who the hell I am because for so long I was trying to hide from the world. And I was also, obviously I had a lot of, with my eyes and the disease that was killing me and all that. There was so much I was battling beyond that. And then my mental health, I started to figure out what depression and anxiety and all these things are. And I was just so vulnerable. And and the only way I could want to like combat it is by going, how do I make someone else feel like me? And I don't want people to feel that way. Like I, I genuinely like the podcast. I want like I again I, and I've said this and I'm not trying to just be a smart ass, but like I don't have to get on here and, and have conversations about eating disorders or addiction or, or any of this shit because it's not my life. But I want it to because I don't want someone to be the eating disorder version of me. I don't want someone to have mm-hmm. to, you know, feel like they're the only one that's eating themselves to death. Or, or trying to have some image that they, they'll never obtain. And even if they do ob- obtain it, they still won't be happy with themselves. And I don't want them to feel like mm-hmm. they're the only one out here that are just sad because, you know, whatever. Whatever it is that's bothering them. And, and it's, you know, and, and so that's why you have to have these conversations. They're so important. And, and not enough of us are having it. 
because, you know, a lot of us have shame too. Like we're ashamed to be disabled. We're ashamed to have addiction issues or be homeless or, or these certain things, you know, to have an eating disorder. You know, there's not much to, on the surface, it doesn't look like I should be proud that I battled an eating disorder because a lot of people shame you into just saying, like breaking it down to the, the smallest common denominator and saying like, oh, well, you're just fat or you're just lazy or you're just these things mm-hmm. when you went through some trauma or something that made you go down this road and it was hard to get, get off and get back onto the right path. Mm-hmm. How did you get onto the right path? I still don't know. Oh, How oh, did sorry. you pull out of that <laughs> wanting to hurt people? Um, well, uh, you started going to therapy and, and, and I've said oh, this, bef- I said, yeah. but I, I found this therapist who we became good friends and like, she broke rules for me. And I say this not in a way that, you know, just to, to get her in trouble because she's no longer a therapist because she, she got out of it. But she she cared about me when I didn't care about myself. And she mm-hmm. treated me like a human and not like a client. Um, mm-hmm. And a person, especially from a person with a disability or someone who's going through so much, um, you know, she she knew I was lonely. She knew I was ha- you know having trouble finding girls to talk to. And she said, look, my cousin is single. Take her out on a date. This is not something a therapist does. But she did this because she knew it would help me and would boost my confidence. It would make me feel good about myself. And the date didn't like it was a nice day. We didn't we didn't end up like dating each other, but we became friends. And it was just something. It was an experience that I could talk about um, and just stuff like that. When someone actually looks out for me, like I had my fourth grade teacher on here who also helped me get into a good high school and all these things. Like she fought for me when I was at my low and just hated myself because I had Ooh. teachers telling me that I'm visually impaired and I'll never make it into a regular school because I'm not worth anything. And she didn't feel that way. She believed in me. And, and even though I didn't have the grade, she got me into a good school. And I will, and that's why I will always tell her I love her. And, you know, I always thank her because without her, I probably would be dead. You know, I tried to kill myself one time and, and that, that it, so I was in such a bad place for so long that, I mean, there's many things that kind of add up to where I am today. Um, obviously the podcast is also therapeutic and helps me. Um, but I mean, there's, there's, and then, you know, I, I've developed to have some good friends and some family members and certain people that are, I have, I have a good circle around me now. Um, and I'm also, you know, being able to advocate and help others, which is, you know, I don't want people mm-hmm. to go through the young version. I don't, I want to see the less, least amount of people to go through what I went through as much as I can try to help. So you're uh, such a good, good example of the fact that just one person caring about you can make so much of a difference. Yeah, and she, like I said, I mentioned two of them, but there, there's there's others. And, right. But we remember, like, when you're going through that stuff, we remember the one or two people. Because, like, you look, your mom is always going to yeah. tell you you're handsome. You know, the people that love you the <laughs> most that are, like, they brought you into this world. And, again, not every parent is great. But the people that, like, have always loved you through through a period of, you know, a long period of time, in your ugh, long period of time, they're always going to say great things about you. Whether they're true or not, they feel that way because they love you unconditionally. So even though it, you know, it's a good thing to hear, you don't believe it as much as when you bump into a stranger or someone who doesn't know you on that level or isn't related to you. And they just say, Hey, you know, I care about you. Even if I don't say I love you, I'm going to show you love. And you're like, why? Like I'm useless because you need it. And even though they don't say Mm -hmm. it, it's all, you know, it's all there. You feel it, Mm -hmm. but they, they, you know, like Mm -hmm. I said, that's why teachers, cops, all these people, they all matter when they are doing their job properly and and because they have such an impact on us. Like we can talk about athletes and all these musicians. Like, yeah, they they can be inspiring in some of the things they've achieved. But the people that we deal with on a daily basis, like, like teachers 
and doctors and stuff like you have such a huge impact on these kids that are going through so much that, you know, we're trying to find every way to, to grasp on to, to something to find our own individuality and just to be happy. Um, cause there's so many paths that you can go down that are just going to just either kill you or just take you down a road of just turning into a shitty human being. Um, you just, yeah. I mean, like I said, there's just, there's people that, like I said, in my life that I've just come across and I will never get rid of them unless they die. They're, they're always going to be someone I, you know, look to because they gave a shit about mm-hmm. me when I didn't care about myself. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you got through that time period. Yeah. I mean, look, I still battled. I still get depressed, but I'm not, my depression lasts for a few hours, maybe even a day tops, but it doesn't last weeks or months or years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I struggle, but I have a lot of people I can reach out to. A lot of times I'm depressed and I'll reach out to people that I know are also battling it and I can try to help them and that helps me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I yeah. take medication too. And I think I should mention that because that is an important part of my recovery. You mentioned it and it made me realize I hadn't mentioned that yet. Oh, yeah, I feel okay. like I'm interviewing you now. <laughs> it's okay. No, but it's a, it's a conversation. And I, I look, I hope I'm not hijacking your episode because I sometimes I feel like no. I, Okay, oh my cool. gosh, no. Okay, cool. Because it's no, your episode and I never I, want to take away from it. But um, No, 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 no. I love it. I okay. love it. I hope that, that your audience has enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed talking with you. Oh, good. Um, do, do you, one other thing I want to do, kind of go back to you. Do, like, do you does your eating sure. disorder have a name? Because I know there's people that are bulimic, anorexic, and all that. Like, do you, Did your eating disorder actually have like a name to it? Yeah. I mean, it technically would be called bulimia nervosa, but Um, I prefer not to use those names because I think that when we say things like eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, um, binge eating, whatever, we get a picture in our mind of of what that person looks like and who that person is. And the truth is any person can look like anything and have any eating disorder. And so I try to stay away in my trainings and things from using the diagnoses and talk more about what someone's experiencing. Like I said, the diagnoses that, I think I said this at the beginning, the diagnostic criteria don't really describe the human experience very well. And so, um, so yes, the answer is yes, it has a name. However, um, I don't tend to use it because I feel like those diagnostic criteria are very limited when we use them. Right. Um, before we kind of get into what you're doing today, like what, what was your final like nail in your coffin to like make you want to like just eat better and, and do good for you? Oh, well, I remember I was, um, I had gone to a party and this guy that I liked that I thought was going to be there wasn't there. And I ended up eating a lot and I don't think I realized I was eating to comfort myself. And then I went home and I was throwing up and I just was sitting on the floor of the bathroom and I realized it just came to me like a ton of bricks just hit me. And it was like, oh my God, I'm not throwing up because I ate too much. I'm throwing up because I'm sad and feel rejected. And it just was like this, epiphany moment of like wait I probably ate that food for feeling and now I'm throwing it up for feeling and it was just this realization this just incredible I don't know if it's god-given or or what you want to call it but just this this mind-opening realization that this is not actually about the food I'm eating and so I uh, the first step was sort of recognizing I was using food for feeling The next step was, like I said, just saying like a zero tolerance policy on throwing up. Like if you eat something, it's going to stay down. So you might as well think 
twice before eating it and, you know, the driving around the block. So I didn't throw up. And then over time, I also came up with a strategy of I just needed to eat what what sounded good in the moment. Because if I did that, it sort of I stopped thinking about it and dwelling on it. And, you know, I would. Um, it's so random, but I, I went to grad school like 45 minutes, let's say, away from my house. And so before I would get on the road to drive home, I would go stop at 7-Eleven and get something to eat. And then by the time I got home, I felt calmer about it. Like even if like in the five minutes after I ate, I felt distressed, I had a long drive to sort of like get through it. And so those were kind of the, the beginning steps I took. After a while, um, I, I got into counseling because of a death in my family. And that's when I started realizing even more of the things behind my eating. I was no longer using my behaviors anymore but I didn't realize that wasn't the end of it, right? That there was still the, the trauma and those kind of things that I had to work through. Mm -hmm. And then it was even longer after that before I got diagnosed with anxiety and ADHD and uh, sleep disorder. And now that I take the appropriate medications for those things, I feel like, oh my God, this is what having balanced brain chemistry feels like. No wonder I was a mess before because this is actually, you know, makes so much sense that I was unable to sort of regulate my emotions and my anxieties and my food because I didn't have the, the proper foundation of brain chemistry. Right. So that's the long answer to, no, you fine. know, what really turned things around for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I like to paint a vivid picture and, you know, to, if you just leave out certain details, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't paint it the mm -hmm. way you needed to. Yeah. Um, What's interesting that you, that reminds me is that I once wrote an article for a magazine. They wanted it to hear from a dietitian who had had an eating disorder. And so I wrote like this heartfelt story. And then of course they like, were like, Oh no, we don't want to write this part. And I thought that medication was a really important part of my recovery. And they're like, we don't really want to focus on that. And they just edited it out. And that was really disappointing to me. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, two-part question. What What is it that you yeah. do now and what was your motivation okay. for getting into it? Okay. So what I do now is um, I educate health professionals about how to help individuals with eating disorders. And the way I got into it was I wanted to become a sports nutritionist. But during graduate school, I realized that my, my sort of true love, because I had that I think I mentioned I was an anthropology major in college and mm -hmm. that what was so fascinating to me was kind of the choices people make and, you know, how we are influenced by our external environment and things like that. And the, even though I think the psychology of eating should really be discussed in every area of nutrition and dietetics, at the time, in 1994, when I was going to school for nutrition, really the only area that you could really sort of that it was kosher to talk about the psychology of eating was in the eating disorder field. And so without even realizing how severe my own eating disorder had been, um, I just, um, it was sort of compartmentalized in my head, like those were my problems, but this is what I'm super fascinated by. And this is what I think I have a heart for. And so I started working in the eating disorder field. And, um, and it was true. I had a kind of a God given gift for relating to people and helping people without necessarily even telling them my story, but just being able to be, you know, compassionate and use my skills. And then over time, I, um, I let go of my private practice because I was doing so much more speaking. I wrote some books and did some workshops. And so 
that's where I am now is I, I do consultations by phone or video with other dietitians across the world who um, are trying to help people with eating issues. That's awesome. Have you been able to work with somebody who like, is it like a mirror image of you and what you went through? Um, I'm sure there are people that in different ways had different parts of it. It's interesting that you asked that because part of, I think being a good um, clinician dietitian is to be able to separate someone's experience from your own and not assume that just because they've had a similar experience that what worked for me would work for them. And so part of what I often tried to do was not think about my own experience while I was in a session with someone, but instead to, because there's that temptation to over relate to someone and say, Oh, well you, you went through this. I went through this and this, Session really isn't about them. So I, I got actually really good at not trying to compare someone's situation to mine. Um, but yes, many of my clients have similarities. And then some were just completely different. Um, because, you know, for every person with an eating disorder, there's a different path to that eating disorder. Yeah. I mean, how, how does it... No two stories are ever exactly the same. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, so how, how long have you been doing this? Um, I became a dietitian in 1998, so, uh, this will be my 24th year. Do you, do you feel like what you're doing is like what you were meant to be doing? Absolutely. There's two things in my life that I feel like were so right that I can't even explain it without, you know, referencing God's hand. And that is finding my career as an eating disorder dietitian and, um, finding my husband, which, by the way, I met him in the waiting room of my therapist's office. So uh, wow. I don't know what to say about that. But it, <laughs> it was just, like I said, hand of God. Um, and I felt so right about those two things. Yes, I know that this is absolutely what I'm meant to do. Yeah. And I am so grateful to have found a career where it, it uses my gifts and my strengths and also helps people. That's just, I mean, what more could a person ask for? I'm so blessed. Yeah, that's kind of the the beauty of it where, you know, I love the people who have just been through, you know, just the ringer and then they come out of it and they find a way to give back to that cause and just say, okay, this is what I went through and now we want to prevent the, you know, we don't want to prevent, we want to prevent any more people being like me uh, or mm-hmm. others like me um, mm-hmm. because you have, you have the, the full experience of what it's like, what it, what they went through, or similar that what they mm-hmm. went through. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. cause I think a lot of people tend to just go to school and cause some people say like, Oh, I have this experience. And you know, it's like, well, what is your experience with mental health? And, and a lot of times it's, it's just through other people's experiences. And so to me, I don't think their credibility is as valid as someone who actually went through it. And for you, mm-hmm. you went through it. And so, you know, even if you don't know every detail or every bit and piece that they went through, you know, you know how to put yourself in their, their state to some degree. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because in, in my field, I think there for a long time, there was this idea that if you were in recovery, you should never, ever talk about it. Um, and I've even been criticized for talking about my recovery. And I think that is the exact wrong way of looking at it. I'm not saying that I assume everyone's going to have the same path as me because that's not correct. But to say, I'm going to present a fake false front to people and not accept that I've had my own struggles, that seems weird. Why would I, why would I do that? But I do think there are people in the field who, again, 
are, you know, they have the same issues or similar issues, but they don't realize it. They don't realize they went into this field because they have, you know, issues that they're struggling with. And, and, you know, there's a little more ego involved and they feel like, you know, they can feel better about themselves by working with people who are doing worse, let's say, than they are. And I don't know, there's just a lot of um, unconscious stuff that goes on in human beings. And, you know, I don't know how to explain that, but I know that there are, you know, doctors and researchers who speak about people with eating disorders as if it's like a different, you know, creature, you know, these people, you know, where, what people, what are you talking about? We're all humans. And, and my belief is that anyone who eats can have eating issues, the end. Um, and so we don't need to sort of put people in different categories. No one's perfect, like you said. And I don't know, I just feel like it's very um, inappropriate to try to, you know, make it sound like people with eating issues are less than or, or troubled or something like that. It's like we all struggle with things. Let's all try to help each other. You know, we all have different skills. When I need an accountant, I go to an accountant. When someone needs a dietitian, they should go to a dietitian. And that's something that is also part of my mission is to really take away the embarrassment people feel about the weird stuff that they do with food. We all do weird stuff with food and, and it's only weird because we label it that way. Um, and it's really okay to, you know, to talk to someone about it. Right. It's hard uh, to solve a problem with the same mind that created it. Yeah, exactly. I think Einstein said that. He's a smart fellow. Um, <laughs> but it's just kind of wrapping up here. Like, so now yeah. you are who you are and you're an adult and, you know, you, you've, you've, I mean, you haven't officially beat it because I could tell you said you're, you're basically treating it like, an you know, a real addiction where you're always mm-hmm. going to kind of be an addict even if you're not indulging in the same behavior. Yeah. Um, so how aware are you now, or, or do you have these like tingles or these feelings now when you are in your own kitchen grabbing whatever it is that you eat? Like, do you, do you still have these moments or is it all the time that you think about, am I eating properly or am I, am I going back to the behavior that I was like, how much is that on your mind when you now go for food? I would say, no, maybe like a tiny percent of the time, maybe 1%, maybe one thought a day, you know, something where it's like, um, Oh, let's see. There's some days when I feel, I might feel like I look in the mirror and I'm like, that's not what I really look like. So I know the body image part is, I think will always, excuse me, be with me. Um, Every once in a while, I'll have a thought that, um, you know, should I have eaten that? And then I just have to remind myself that it is really moot. You did eat it. It's the end. Um, I do have typical, like, you know, dietitian-y thoughts, like, are we eating enough vegetables in the house? But to me, it's not just a dietitian-y thought. It's sort of like a perfectionist thought. So I, I see some negativity there. It's been a long time since I had like what I would consider a true eating disorder thought. I've been married for 15 years next month. And um, thank you. Or maybe March, whenever March is uh, not next month. If he, forgot, is, if he forgot this, he would be in confusing. trouble. Yeah. We got married on St. Patrick's Day. So that's in March. Okay. I only forgot what month it is now. I didn't forget when we were married. But, okay, <laughs> so enough. 15 years. So at the very beginning of my marriage, I remember thinking once I was so angry at my husband and I remember thinking, if I didn't eat breakfast, then I might get really underweight and then he would know how mad I am. Right. And I immediately had the thought of, okay, first of all, not eating breakfast is not going to make you immediately underweight. And second of all, he's going to have no idea how mad you are. So if you're mad at him, go talk to him because that's how adults communicate. And so that was 15 years ago already, but it's a very 
an example in my mind of just like how I would say my eating disorder can still flare up, even though I just went and ate breakfast. I didn't actually act on the thought, but you know, that's an example of a thought I might have that I might still consider an eating disorder thought, even though it doesn't end up influencing my behavior. I don't allow it to. Right. Uh, two more questions. So what, um, and this kind of came out of nowhere, just, I just thought of it, but like, how much is okay. like, how much is it like finding the person that, you know, you love and unconditionally and loves you back? How much does that make you like, how makes you feel better about yourself? Um, knowing that like, you know, he accepts you, he appreciates how, you know, he loves you. He thinks you're attractive. Oh, yeah. How much does that help you on your own self image and, and with your eating disorder in the back of your mind? Like, how well, much like is, here's you know, another example. He helps, he helps a lot. We don't talk about it very much because it doesn't come up very much, but sometimes so for example, my stepson graduated from high school. So he's 25 now. So that was at least seven years ago. So again, we're talking kind of in the distant past, but it's just a strong example that, that comes to mind. Um, that's a, that's a stressful situation for a stepmother. Um, just because there's no official role for a stepmother in a high school graduation, like where do I fit in kind of thing. So I remember I had bought a dress that I was planning to wear. And I remember thinking, oh, shoot, I never got that dress taken in. It was a little bit too big and I need to get it taken in. And I never did. So I thought, all right, I'll try it on and see if, you know, I can still wear it. And you know what? It fit and it didn't need to be taken in. So that told me that I must be bigger than I was when I had tried on the dress and bought it. And so I said to my husband, this is the dress I want to wear, but I'm feeling kind of, I it needed to be taken in and now it doesn't. And he just he's so calm about things. He doesn't really, it, he just doesn't get into the drama. And he said, well, hon, you know, we all have weight fluctuations and it's good to have something that looks good on you during, you know, whatever size you are. And that, it just settled me down and made me realize this isn't really about the stress that he thinks looks fine. This is really about me feeling sort of awkward in this stepmother role and not really knowing what my place is. And so that, you know, he's just very calm. And so, yes, I think having someone else, whether it's a significant other or not, but just someone else in my life who's just is very calm about it. Yes, I think that's a positive influence. Yeah. And it, it, well, I mean, and you know that, like, he loves you and you're not, you don't have to really impress anybody anymore. I mean, obviously him, but in general, like, you know, he finds you attractive. He loves you for who you are. And you don't, it, there isn't this, you know, especially also you're not in school anymore where you're, you know, school can be brutal where you're trying to be the pretty one or even just be, you know, not be the ugly girl. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but you're, you know, like I said, you're well, content. Well, dating, dating is rough. I'm, I'm too, content yeah. that I'm not in the dating world anymore. That does not appeal to me at all. And, um, yeah, I, I guess there's also an aging factor. I feel like as I've, I've gotten older, you know, there is less. I don't know. There's less attention paid to a woman who's 49 in the public eye. And in some ways, I guess some women may find that sad. Like people aren't looking at me anymore, but to me, good. Don't look at me. You know, I, I, I don't want to be an object of, you know, you telling me if I'm attractive or not, you know, I have that bigger fish to fry in my life. And I think women are often, treated as you know sort of an object and, and that's not that's not an ideal way to go through life but i think it's great that he balances you out and just kind of diffuses what you some of these feelings that you have and he like i said he he loves you yeah. he finds you attractive so it's like it, it doesn't really matter what other people feel i mean not that his opinion should matter i mean your opinion is the ultimate one but 
the fact that you can go on these little feelings of, oh, man, maybe I'm a little overweight or whatever. He just goes, yeah, but you're still attractive. I still love you and you're who I want to be with. And it, it, it may, like I said, it may diffuse some of your feelings of just taking it out on yourself. It's like, well, he loves me, so whatever. Yeah, well, and I think that, that also, you know, internally, I, I I don't know how to say this quite right, but I, I think it could be anyone. I, that's what I'm trying to say is I don't know that it has it would have to be my husband. It could be a dear friend. It could be a family member. But the key is that I don't feel ashamed anymore of saying things like that. In other words, in order to get support from another human being, you have to express yourself to another human being so that they can respond. And I think that's where I didn't used to be when I was younger was I wouldn't feel comfortable saying to a friend, I'm having a bad body image day. Now I would feel comfortable saying to someone, I'm having a bad body image day, you know, because I'm not ashamed of it. Before I would think of it as sort of a reality. Like if I think I look bad, then I look bad and I shouldn't say anything because I won't want to draw anyone's attention to it. Now I understand that it's just a feeling and it may be detached from reality and I can share that with another person and they're not going to overreact or underreact. They're just going to support me for however I'm feeling. Just like if I said I had a headache, you know what I mean? It's not like they can fix it, but they can just support me and, you know, have empathy. Yeah. It's always good when you know someone has your back too. just, you know. Yeah, I agree with that. You feel safe and you just feel like you can be you at all times and, you know, even even when you can let out the bad things, when you when you're feeling I agree unattractive or whatever, you can just say it to someone how you feel. Without- a healthy relationship is very healing. I I totally agree with you, and I think that that the therapy relationship is actually I think everyone should go to therapy because that experience of just being able to be yourself and being accepted is sort of good practice for a really safe you know, romantic relationship, if that's what someone wants. But I feel like that therapy relationship kind of models that for you, what it's like to just say what's really on your mind as, as dark and as bleak and as crazy as it sounds to you when it's coming out of your mouth and for someone else to take it seriously and listen and, and even reframe it for you, you know, and tell you why they see it differently. I think that's, that's a healthy relationship starter uh, or, you know, foundation where, you know, hopefully once you get used to saying what you really feel and not being ashamed of it so much, then you can find yourself in a real relationship. I don't think it's a coincidence that my husband and I met each other in the waiting room of our therapist's office. It was two different therapists that shared the waiting room. But I think we were both at a stage in our life where we were just kind of over the bullshit and just trying to really be our real selves and find out who that was. And so two people trying to be their real selves started dating and it ended up being a really good thing. Right. Awesome. Uh, so one more question. Um, okay. You know, well, yeah. So I, at the end, I always like to let like the guests kind of, you know, give advice to someone who like you know the younger version of you, so they don't feel alone. Oh, or whatever. So yeah. You know, can you just tell some you know that person out there who's kind of lost and trying to work on their body or hurt their body in some ways, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, kind of what to expect, what to, how to feel and, and how to kind of combat it. Sure. I would say there's nothing wrong or broken about you except maybe your brain chemistry. And so some of the destructive things you do with food are probably you trying to help yourself feel better. 
and there may be some other ways that you can feel better. You may um, may make sense to, to see a doctor, or may make sense to see a counselor, may make sense to see a dietitian. But whatever needs you have are probably normal human needs. You just haven't found really a safe way of, of getting them. So yeah, definitely reach out for help. You're welcome to get in touch with me. I can help you find someone in your area. Um, I'm sure my email address will be in the show notes, but it's jessica at jessicasetnick.com. Um, and if there's any professional out there who wants advice and guidance, I do teach a workshop. Um, but, I, but I'm happy to point anyone in the right direction of, of trying to get help. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, thank you for coming on. You were really a delight. Oh, thanks. I had a great time talking with you and I feel like we put a lot of good energy out into the world, which the younger me would be like, good energy, what's that? That's ridiculous. But now I can say that without, <laughs> yeah. without snark. We put a lot of good energy out in the world. That, and like yeah. I said, it's just good to have these conversations so that, you know, Thank you. more information people can pick up on and just know, like, I, that's why I said I like to have these like raw and filtered conversations because a lot of times stuff gets filtered out and people don't get to hear the, the entirety of it and don't get to hear someone's full story and, and they don't get to hear everything that you went through. Whereas if you take some certain parts out, it's not as important or it's not as, a, as effective. Um, you know, when someone's struggling, they need to hear all of it. They don't need to hear just bits and pieces. Uh, mm-hmm. They need to hear more that, you know, like I said, cause for them to resonate with you and to, to feel uh, that they are going through this sim- something similar. They need to know mm-hmm. the, every in and out that you, you know, who you are, what you went through, and uh, and you did that. So it's awesome. Well, I'm happy to share them. And if you think that helps someone else, then that's doubly great. So thanks for the opportunity. Of course. And, uh, you know, we'll be friends and we'll, we'll talk outside here and we'll keep in touch. Good. Um, that sounds great. And uh, we'll, keep sh- we'll keep sharing cat pictures. Uh, oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> um, I'll put a picture of my cat in the show notes if you'll let me. Fair enough. I don't care. Like I said, bullet, everyone <laughs> knows what Bullet looks like. He's all over Instagram. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. And, uh, we'll, bye for now. Bye for now. All right, guys. We're going to get out of here. And uh, I'm going to go eat. Go get a hot sausage because I am starving. So everyone take care of themselves, do some good out here, and uh, I'll see y'all later.